Welcome to CityGraceNY.com. Thank you for listening to this message recorded live at City Grace Church. All right, let's pray. God, Lord, as we come to your word today, would you help us to have open hearts to experience your love and to know your love? And God, we're, we're longing, we're thirsting for, for more. And we know that you are a God who answers prayers. You're a God who moves in power, and and we don't have to make a show of it. We don't have to try to conjure up emotion or or, or passion, but this is something that that we have a right to as children of God, as your children, to come before your throne to ask for what we need, and certainly, Lord, to ask for what you want to give us, what you have told us, that you have this available for us. And you want us to ask. You want us to come and to, to learn, to thirst, to hunger, to experience more of your love. And we are thirsting, Lord. We're, everyone's thirsting. We're all longing for something. So help us to realize that our longings are found in you. And may we come to experience a deeper connection with that love, Lord. So be with me as I speak today and bless us all with open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So as a pastor, you know, one of the things that I get to do that I, that I enjoy, although it's challenging at times, is I get to meet with people who are going through tough times. And a couple years ago, I was meeting with a guy named Jared. Jared's not his real name, but I'll protect his identity. And uh, Jared was, he was miserable. Uh, he just was not enjoying life. He was finding his work to be incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And he was depressed out of his mind, uh, you know, not suicidal, but he just was so profoundly unhappy. And so at some point in the conversation, I, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what do you, what do you think about the fact, the reality that, Jared, God really loves you and he really cares about you? And Jared said to me, well, you know, that's, I don't really think about that that often, is what he said. And I remember that that was a profound for me, it was kind of an eye-opening experience, and in my, in my, I guess in my flesh, I almost felt for a moment there like I, as a pastor, must. <laughs> this guy's been coming to my church for many years, and he says to me, "Yeah, the love of God is not something I really think about that much." So, I'm like, I have really failed this guy. If this, if this gentleman. It's not even on his radar that God loves him. Like, what have I done wrong? But let's say that it's not, it's not about me, though. Why, how is it possible that, you know, one of the greatest realities of life, which is the love of God, could be something that this man, in, in his struggles and with everything he's going on, didn't take time to stop and consider that reality. I was astounded. And, you know, to be totally honest, as I was preparing a message for Advent and um, I, was, I was given the subject of love, we're, we're anticipating, we're waiting for love, right? The birth of Christ is about the love of God being manifested in the world. I'll be totally honest. I, even I struggled to connect with it and to think about that. And I was like, what, what am I going to talk about? What Bible passage am I going to use? You know, when was the last time I took the time to really think about the love of God. And so if this man's experience and if my experience are at all normative, then maybe it is the case that a lot of us, you know, in our everyday today, our day-to-day life, we actually don't stop that often to think about this incredible reality that God loves us. But I think that knowing how to answer that question, does God love me? Does God care about me? 
is arguably one of the most important questions that you could ever come to terms with in your entire life. Knowing how to answer that question, I believe, would profoundly, profoundly change you if we only knew and only really experienced and internalized this incredible truth that God loves his people. This is an incredible thing. And I don't think that I would be exaggerating one iota to say that if I were to summarize the message of the Bible, the theme of the Bible, you have this entire book, thousands of pages, what is the Bible about at the end of the day? Like, what really is the message of the Bible? It is, I think, clear from start to finish that God loves his people. He loves his creation, which he has made. He loves his people that he has set apart for himself. He loves the world. God is love. That, that's the message of the Bible. And so I think that if that is true, and if that really, you take all the scripture and everything that, do, that God has done for us in Christ, and you boil it down to that one idea, this idea that God really loves you, then that truth ought to be something that we think about every single day. It ought to be something that we meditate on. It ought to be something that informs our decisions. And when we're in hardship or when we're going through stuff, right, this, I, this God loving us should not be in the background. It shouldn't be something that, oh yeah, once in a while I think about that in church on Sunday morning. Like, no, this should be the defining theme of your life. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be human, to know God's love, to experience God's love. That's what we're made for. I'm not exaggerating at all. And so it is something worth thinking about. It is something worth investing in. It is way, way bigger than I think we realize. So I want to just make a couple points today. Um, God wants us to know his love. God wants us to experience his love. And God wants us to live out of that love. Okay. So number one, God wants us to know his love. And the primary, I think one of the primary ways that God does that is by helping us to uncover and discover who we really are, by giving us an identity. Um, when it comes to parenting, for those of you who have parents, um, you know that there are those times when your kids are like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, where you just want to strangle your kids. And I was experiencing that about five minutes ago. <laughs> so... We were ready to throttle those kids. So I am so thankful for Sunday school because they're just being out of control, not listening. But, but let, okay, so take a step back. But let's, you know, thinking about parenting, you know, what, what is one of the greatest gifts that we could ever give our children is a strong sense of knowing who they are. Knowing who they are, giving them an identity. If we could give our, if we could successfully implant in our children a rock-solid sense of identity guarantee, guaranteed that their prospects for life would be way, way better. Because a sense of identity, knowing who you are, is a strong foundation with which you can handle virtually any adversity that you experience in life. It's knowing who you are. And so many of the problems that exist in our world is because of an identity crisis. It's because people don't know who they are. They don't know where they come from. 
They don't know where they're going. They don't know what their life is about. They don't know what the purpose of their life is about. And so they're grasping. Because we seek identity. We want identity. We want to know at the end of the day, what is true about me? Who am I? And so in the absence of having that, we, 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 we are off in search of it. And we become tribalistic. And we find our quote-unquote people. Or we find our identity. Or we find something in work or whatever. And we're trying to, we're trying to grasp a hold of anything that will shake that 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 deep sense of insecurity we have about, at the end of the day, not knowing who we are. So the human race, I would say, isn't an identity crisis. This is not just something that millennials or Gen X have. No, we're all, we're all in an identity crisis. Why? Well, we go way back. Adam and Eve were created in a garden. God created them, not because he had some need, right? God's not sitting around being lonely. God is not lonely, Right? He's not, uh, oh, I'm bored, I'm lonely, I need to create some, some pets for me to play with and, and enjoy because I'm, there's something wrong. No, like, like God in the Trinity is fully self-sufficient, fully in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly in love uh, with each other in a perfect dance, a perfect balance. So God is completely whole. So why did he bother making the creation? Well, the, theologians say that, that God, he didn't have to, but he did it out of sheer delight and out of sheer love. And so the creation, the world, humanity, is a, it's an overflow of God. And so God creates Adam and Eve sheerly for delight, sheerly for love. Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden with a perfect balance of relationship with each other. They're completely naked and they feel no shame. It's interesting if you look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that the word naked is used four times in the very beginning of the Bible. Like the fact that they're naked is a very big deal because th their being naked means that they have no shame and they have no fear and they have no guilt. It means that they are com in complete perfect community loving and open to one another. There's no fear. There's no hiding. They are completely, completely authentic. And Adam and Eve have a very, very strong and grounded and rooted identity because God has made them in their image. So they know who they are, right? They're happy. And yet the enemy comes, we know the story, and he tempts them to seek something that's not for them. And so Adam and Eve go against God with the horrible, horrible result that they sin, they are in rebellion against God, and then therefore they are evicted from their home, from their garden, and sent out into the world, probably for their own uh, protection. But in that horrible, horrible event, the fall, the image of God, while not completely lost is all but lost. It's, it's, it's completely um, wrecked, and there's only, a, um, there's only a little bit, a thread of it that hangs on in every individual human person. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But what is the result of the fact that they have been kicked out of their home? How many of you have ever experienced being evicted? Hopefully not too many hands go up. Right? Being evicted is a horrible thing, um, in fact, it, one of the losses that I think as New Yorkers that we often don't take time to grieve is the fact that we get priced out of our apartments. But if you talk to, if you talk to New Yorkers that live in the, in the other boroughs, you will oftentimes hear, hear stories and you hear a lot of grief about how sad people are that the, the communities and the homes that they grew up in, they were priced out of them because of gentrification and then they're forced to, they're forced to leave. But the thing that actually compounds that for a lot of people that, that live in these communities that have experienced gentrification is not only are they forced to leave their, their homes against their will, by the way, but then the very communities that they come from have changed so much 
that even if they were to go back to the neighborhoods where they grew up in, the neighborhoods are not there anymore because they're not the same. They've completely changed. And so that, that leaves a deep sense of alienation that we experience in our own hearts. Why? Well, because a part of our heart belongs in the place that we came from. And if I can't return to where I come from, then I experience a, a, a disconnect in my own heart, my own soul. Because I grew up there, I'm from there, but I, but I can't, I want to go there. I want to experience home, I want to go back, but I can't. Uh, I know a, a person who, um, you know, she was um, undocumented, she's an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, and she moved to the United States many years ago. She has kids here now. She cannot return to Mexico because if she ever goes back to Mexico, she will not be able to return into the United States again because she was here illegally. So this is a tragic situation to be Mexican and to live in America, but not to be able to visit your hometown. Can you imagine how you would feel if you could not go back, like, even though you wanted to go? Her father died and she wasn't able to go to his funeral because if she went back to Mexico for his funeral, she wouldn't have been able to come back in the States. Her, her father died, her mother died, she missed, I mean, you missed all these funerals. So, so that not being able to go back to where we come from is a source of alienation, and it is the reason that we have an identity crisis. Because why? The human race, our home, was the Garden of Eden. We were birthed in the Garden of Eden. We had fellowship. We had community. We as a human race were formed in the Garden of Eden, and yet the travesty of the sin and what Satan has done is we have been evicted from the Garden, and therefore, even though we want to go back, we can't because of our sin. Because our sin is like a, a, a large kind of barrier that exists between God and, 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 and human beings. So, so think about this, this alienation, this identity crisis. Why do we have an identity crisis? Because we want to go back to the Garden, but we can't. And see, to Remember I said that the image, we were made in the image of God. That's our original identity. But with the fall, the image of God was largely destroyed. But there's a little thread of it that remains in our hearts. And what that image of God does in us, it's like a homing beacon. And it constantly, constantly reminds us and pulls us back to God. And that is why every single human being, regardless of where you come from, that, that we all have deep, deep, deep down within us, maybe we know it, maybe we don't, but there is a little part of us that is pulling us back to God. But here's the trouble, is that if we were to follow the homing beacon, right, it's pulling us back to God because we're, we're, we got this little part of us that is still, like, it's in the image of God, it's God-connected, and yet the second we, we go to try to follow, boom, we come up against the wall, the barrier of our sin. And so what God does, the greatest act of love that God does for us is helping us to rediscover who we are. The beacon is drawing us back to God. The homing beacon is drawing us back to God. And God, through his love, his sacrifice on the cross, removes that barrier so that we can get back into the garden so that we can re-experience fellowship and reunion and communion with God. And that is who we are, right? Um, the love of God is our identity. If we think about what is identity, identity are those things that you believe about yourself to be true. So if I ask you who you are, your identity is these are the things that are absolutely most fundamentally true about me. 
And what is that? What God does for us in giving us an identity is he goes to the cross on our behalf. He suffers greatly. The barrier is there, the barrier of our sin. But Jesus on the cross removes the barrier at great cost to himself. He gives up his life to reconnect us with God and showing us his love. And so what that means is that our identity, our fundamental identity, the identity that God wants us to, to understand and to believe in and to experience is an identity of being a child of God and being loved by God. So when it comes to identity, the most important reality for the human race to discover, and this is what it means to be fully human, it's what it means to be, um, it, it is the, the purpose for which we were created, is to know and experience the love of God. God's great, incredible love for us, which he revealed to us on the cross. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Knowing this love is a foundation for building or rebuilding your life. It is a foundation for encountering any hardship and overcoming it. It is knowing who you are, being able to be the person that God has made you to be. It is a gift. It is something God gives us. So God loves us. How does he love us? He loves us by helping us to recover our original identity, his beloved children. Now, uh, we can go a step further even and say that God not only wants us to know his love on an intellectual level, but God also wants us to experience his love. So the Bible is very clear that the love of God, at the end of the day, is not something that depends on the daily circumstances of your life. So some people maybe at times feel like, oh, I'm not really sure if God loves me because I've experienced trouble and hardship and suffering in my life, and so that doesn't seem to add up with the love of God. But the fact is that, that the love of God is not based on daily experience. It's based on fact. It's based on history. It's based on what God has done in Christ. And so we know very clearly, and that is a firm foundation for, love, for us knowing God's love, right? It, it is based on what God has done. We know very, very clearly that God loves us. The trick, or maybe the challenge is, for that knowledge to go from up here to our hearts and actually changing how we live in the world and transforming us from the inside out. So how do we know God loves us? Well, there's passages like John 3, 16 through 17. So um, why don't we read this together, okay? Ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, a lot of the time, the love of God is like a $10 million trust fund that you have, but you've like lost the account number. And so that money is sitting in this incredible trust fund, right? Maybe your grandparent was like a rich Singaporean or something like that. And so they've given you all this cash, and you're going around complaining, oh, I'm so broke, I'm so broke, oh, I have all these financial troubles. It's like, yo, you got a $10 million trust fund. Check it out. Like, tap into that. You know, we, we, we know this love, and it's there, but, but we're, not, we're not accessing it. We're not experiencing it. And the experience is so profoundly important. I would say that it's not enough just to know God's love, that he loves you as a fact, 
But that love is meant to be something that you know, that you feel deep within your heart. And if you don't feel it, then I think that it's something that you can say, God, I want to feel this. Why? Because I don't think God would make the entire message of the Bible, I love you, but if you don't feel that way, if you don't feel my love, that's okay. Just focus on the fact that it's true, uh, but don't worry about how you feel. That doesn't make sense to me. I think if God has gone through such great lengths, he's died on a cross so that we can know God's love, then he would take it a step further and say, not only are you going to know this love, but I want you to feel this love. And for me, and maybe for some of us, maybe that's where the breakdown is many times, is that we know it, but we don't feel it. We don't experience it. So what we remember then, we look back to Scripture, is that when Christ, at the end of his ministry, his earthly ministry, he promised his disciples that he would give them the Holy Spirit. And so they knew Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. They had spent three years with Jesus. But there was something still missing. And he says, it's not until I go back to be with my Father in heaven that I will send you the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to empower you and give you power to do things and to experience things that up until now you have not known. So they knew Jesus. They had heard from Jesus. They had been taught by Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus. But now the Holy Spirit was going to do something new. He said the Holy Spirit is going to give you power. And what was that power for? And if we keep reading through the New Testament, interestingly enough, we find out that one of the key things that the Holy Spirit of God has power to do is to help you grow in your understanding and experience of the love of God. It is one of the most incredible things that the Holy Spirit can do. It helps us experience love. So Ephesians chapter 3, please read this with me, okay? Are we ready? All right. I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. Sorry. So what happened there? I'm using the NIV. I don't know what you're using. All right. May have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see, the goal of life is to recover your true identity. And your identity is based most fundamentally in the love of God. The fullness of your life, the goal of your life, the very, I'm not even exaggerating, the purpose that you were created, that God put you in this world, was to know his love. That's it. That's the main purpose. And it's the Holy Spirit that, as he prays, as pray, the Holy Spirit would give you power, right? Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to have power. It's going to enable you to do something that you couldn't do before. It's going to give you gifts. And then the gift that Paul describes is this gift of us mining the depths, tapping into the $10 million trust fund, going deeper and deeper and taking more and more of it. But unlike a trust fund, the love of God never runs out. And that's the incredible thing is that he has this love for us and he wants us to get to know it. He wants us to dive deeper and deeper into it. And you can spend an entire lifetime learning more about the love of God, experiencing the life of God. And at the end of your life, you die and you're old 
you've only scratched the surface because the love of God is so large and so big and is so deep and so wide that there literally is no end to it. It's infinite. Isn't that incredible? And so, like I said, God does not, he's not toying with us. He, he's not saying, I love you, but you don't feel that love? Okay, don't worry about it. Just plow through anyway. Forget about it. That, that's not what he wants for us. He wants you to know this love, to experience it. You know, I, I, I came to experience the power of God's love a couple years ago. I had, um, you know, some of you know that I had a, I had a situation in my life where I, I, I had completely burned out, and I was in ministry, and I was profoundly, profoundly unhappy. And just, I had no joy left in my life, and there were just so many things about ministry that got me down, and I was frustrated over things that didn't go the way I wanted to. As you know, I was depressed that people, some folks had left the church, and depressed about people that had left the city for various reasons. And it's like every time I experienced a loss, it just like took me down another, another notch, another notch until I was like, I was pathetic. I was like, I was a shell. I was a shell of a pastor. And so I went to my, um, to my council at the time and I, I'm like, guys, I, 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 like preaching on Sunday morning is agony for me. I can barely do it because I, I'm getting up there and I'm preaching things that I barely feel like I even believe. And I'm certainly not experiencing these things. And they're like, Ben, why don't you take a break? I'm like, oh, thank goodness. That's exactly what I need. So they gave me a little sabbatical. And during the sabbatical, I, I, I focused a lot. I met with the spiritual director, and God met me. And one of the things that I would do, I'd go out by the East River. It was during the summertime. And I would just sit there, and I would consciously try to be in God's presence. And I would spend time just quieting my heart, meditating, quieting my heart, being still before the Lord, and then just being in God's presence. And I'm not lying. God really did an incredible thing in my life during that time because by the end of the 10 weeks, somehow I, I re-experienced or was reintroduced to the love of God. And I realized that despite what I thought were my failures in ministry, despite people maybe being frustrated with me or just, you know, despite whatever people thought about me, that God loved me. That God loved me. And that healed me. It healed me. And I came back at the end of the 10 weeks, and I was a different person. And somebody even, um, he even said, he's like, I feel like your preaching somehow changed between the old you, and then when you came back from sabbatical, you were different. And I think that what it was was I, I experienced God's love, and it, it, it did change me. It healed me. It brought back my joy. You see, we were made for that love. This is not... a uh, a hobby for a select few. It's not just for super Christians. This is hu for human beings. We were made for this love. Our li your life is not complete without it. But the whole purpose and goal of your, of your life is to go deeper and to go deeper through prayer, through worship. Know this love. It's there for you. It's available. He's gone to great lengths so that you can know it. Start cashing those checks, okay? Finally, so God wants us to know this love, experience this love, and finally, God wants us to live out this love. My final point. There is nothing that is sadder than the fact that many, many people in our world believe that Jesus was a person and they respect his teachings, but then when it comes to the church, they're so turned off by the church because they say, 
wasn't Jesus about love, why don't I see that love demonstrated in the church? Um, Gandhi was, you know who Gandhi was. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think that a lot of churches and a lot of us have lost our way because we're so good. We're so good, especially New Yorkers, at myopically focusing on one thing. That's a very redundant sentence because being myopic, for some reason the word myopic has come up in our family a lot. I think I've been accused of being myopic. What does myopic mean? It means that, like, you're, you're you have tunnel vision. You're focused on one thing. You know, leave it to us to be myopic about career, or leave it to us to be myopic about raising the perfect children, or leave it to us to be myopic about getting straight A's and getting into NYU, or whatever the case may be. I mean, we are so good at making our lives about one thing. But what if the purpose of life was to be myopically focused on being the most loving person that you could possibly be? What if God's goal for us and not like a side goal, but like the main goal, was that his people would become loving the way he is loving, right? I, that's a rhetorical question, but it's, it's not in question. It, that's true. That's the reality. Is that, and so churches and us, we're, we're so focused on getting people inside the door. We're so focused on quote-unquote outreach. We're so, quote unquote, we're so interested in trying to get people to stay. We're doing all these things. But, like, is it possible that sometimes in the midst of doing all that stuff, we forget the main thing, which was just loving people? And maybe if the church excelled in loving people, maybe if we all made it our job to be PhDs and how to love other people, we wouldn't have to invite people to come, and we sure wouldn't have to invite them to stay because when they showed up and they were loved on as much as they were, they were like, this is the, this is the best thing I've ever found in the entire world. Why would I ever want to go anywhere else? I, if you put me in a room with people who love me the way Jesus did, I would want to stay there for sure. <laughs> this is our goal. This is our this is what we're supposed to be PhDs in how to love other people. This is the command. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I command you to do. What was Jesus' command? Two, love God and love people. So simple. So simple. Love people the way I've loved people. You know, sometimes I get worried about meeting Jesus at the judgment. Because Jesus and Paul have both talked about needing to, at some point, that we have to come before the Father and give an account for our life. And Jesus said, he said, you will have to give an account for every careless word that you have ever said. That scares the daylights out of me, because I said a lot of careless stuff in my time, unfortunately. But, you know, we believe, don't we, that we're saved by grace, and grace is gift, which means that at the end of the day, we're not saved because of our works. We, we can't earn our way to heaven. There's nothing that we could ever, to be, ever be due to, uh, do to be good enough for God, right? We are saved because Jesus Christ has helped us rediscover who we are by breaking down the dividing wall between us and God and giving us a relationship with God, helping us to experience and know God's love so that we can be the people that he made us to be. So we're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. How? By believing in what God has done for us in Christ. But what does faith look like? And I think Christmas, if any other time of the year, is an, is an important time and it's a holiday to remember that love is embodied. That God doesn't love us abstractly, but he loves us. 
He embodies his love. He shows up. He comes into the world. And so, too, real faith. We are saved by faith. I'm not, I'm not questioning that at all. Romans chapter 3. Do we have it on the board? The righteousness. Here, read it with me. I love it. I love it when y'all, you guys are doing such a good job of reading. Okay, together. This righteousness from God. <laughs> one more time. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. So we're saved by faith, but what does faith look like? Faith embodied looks like love. Faith embodied looks like love. There is no such thing as faith without love. You want to have faith, you claim you have faith, I'll see it in your love. You know, the Pharisees, they were experts in the law, but they would have failed a course. They're PhDs in law, but they would have failed a course in love. They would have failed a course in the heart of God. They know all the rules, all the things you're supposed to do, but they would have failed the love of God because they do not know God's heart. We, Christians, are not called to be Pharisees. We're not supposed to be experts in the law. We're supposed to be experts in the love of God. And when we are experts in the love of God, our behavior will take care of itself. I'm convinced. We know what to do. Why? Because we'll be overflowing with God's heart. We'll be overflowing with love. If we want, well, this is what John says. Remember I told you that I quake in my boots sometimes thinking about meeting God and sitting, at the, sitting before the judgment throne and have to give an account of my life, all the things I've done and said. But John says the way that we develop a confidence in us that we don't have to be afraid is by becoming loving like God. And when we begin to see and experience that actually faith in God, realizing how forgiven we are, is changing us, it's making us loving, he's like, that, that is the thing that is going to give you the confidence that when you come before God, you can say, God, I know that I, that I failed. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I, I'm saved by grace, and I know you love me. And it's evident everywhere. And the fruit, what is the fruit? It's the love that you've shown to your neighbors, to your spouses, to your kids, and to the world. So look at 1 John 4, 16b through 19. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. I was just talking about the confidence on the day of judgment. How? Love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. So we know God loves us. We can actually experience God's love, and we as a community are meant to be PhDs in love to excel in loving, to learn what it means to love. It's the goal of your life. The goal of your life, every single one of us, the goal of our lives is to excel in our capacity to give and to receive love. It's what we're made for. It's when we're most alive. I believe it's when we're most happy too. But let's think about that. Let's keep that as a focus for this holiday season and never forget the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving our neighbor. And I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite you all to stand and um, let's get some... Get some worship going in here. And, and can we have our prayer team be available as well? 
maybe, you know, maybe there's some of you that you really know that, that like my friend Jared, you've gotten away from the love of God and you need to come back. You need to re-experience that. Um, prayer team, would you guys be willing to pray for that, for anybody who needs it? I see Pastor John, Whitney, Yoko, um, Stephanie will do it too as well. Um, if you would like somebody to pray for you so that you can know this love, then, then be courageous. Come up, ask for prayer. Um, but I believe that this is something God wants us to ask for. And so we don't have to be shy about, we don't have to put on a show, we don't have to be shy about asking for it, but we can come before the throne and say, God, you're our Father. We know you love us. Thank you for that. Help us to experience your love as well. So I'll pray, we'll worship. If you want to come receive prayer, uh, please do so. So Lord, I pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would fill this place, that you would fill each one of our hearts, and that perhaps in a new way today, we would know your love, we would experience your love, oh God. Lord, this is what it's all about. You have died on the cross for us so that we can know you, so that we don't have to be afraid of you, Lord. You have taken away the dividing wall, the dividing wall of hostility, so that we can have fellowship and connection with you. Lord, you have given us your spirit, and it is a powerful spirit. It is a spirit that can do things that we can't do. Spirit, would you come Fill our hearts and help us to experience your love, your loving power afresh over each one of us. Lord, help us to be open. May our shame, may our guilt not stand in the way. You've died on the cross for all those things. You have shed your blood on the cross to wipe that away. So help us to experience and help us to know. May there be nothing separating us, Lord. May we live in this. May we live for this. May it fill us. Receive God's love. Receive it. Spirit, fill. Spirit, come. So let, let's worship and receive God's love. And again, please come for, for prayer if you would like. <laughs>